Now I want to uh, move, going to have to move fast, so I'll skip the definition and we'll go directly to areas of power encounter. I deal with power encounter under two levels. Uh, one is the personal level in which essentially the demons are on the initiative attacking the Christian. This is that line on the chart where the, the attack takes place. As far as the missionary is concerned, uh, one has to constantly be aware that we're in a battle. We don't have an option. We either fight it well or we fight it poorly, but there is no copping out of the battle. It's, it's the good news, bad news part of Christianity. The good news is that Christ has defeated the enemy and won the war, but the battle still goes on. It's like God's promised Israel, I'm giving you Canaan land, but you're going to have to fight the battles one at a time as you take it. And so that's the way it is with us in this uh, power encounter. The first area in which we may be attacked is the physical level. Uh, you can look up those scriptures. Uh, one of them would be the area of disease. Satan does have the ability to attack the body, as he did Job. A missionary teacher from Columbia, South America, was sent home completely debilitated. She went to all the clinics around and nobody could find any organic or functional cause for her debilitation, but it got so bad she couldn't read her Bible or pray and she finally just decided to hang it up and put her Bible on the shelf and quit trying. So that morning she decided to do that. The Lord said to her, why don't you fast and pray and cast them out? No one has suggested up to this point seriously that this might be a demonic problem. She didn't know a whole lot about it, so she uh, tried to pray and couldn't. She finally wrote on a card, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ who shed his blood on Calvary for me to leave me, and she named three problems that she had. She read that every 30 minutes during the day, fasted and prayed the rest of the time. By the end of the day, she said she felt so good she was scared. And it took a week to dawn on her that she really was cured and that her debility was gone and uh, she led a, a normal, productive Christian life. Uh, that's, uh, again, it's a, a dimension that um, our cognitive categories don't really plug into. So we've got to develop a new cognitive category that says Satan has the ability and demons have the ability to affect the human body. Uh, they will affect the appetites. They will take the normal bodily appetites and push them to extremes. One man had such a, a drive for food that he would be walking down a street and would just always turn into a restaurant. He, he just couldn't seem to control himself. And that sounds ridiculous, but that was his experience. His problem was simply that he had been messing with a Ouija board and and beginning to take it seriously, and Satan had used this as an, an opening into his life. The minute he confessed that and renounced it, his compulsion for food was gone. Uh, some of the bulimia dimensions are of this nature. I'm not saying they all are necessarily, but uh, you can believe that if a Christian is having problems in this area, Satan's going to try and take advantage of it with uh, complications. So he will operate in the sexual area, I'm just convinced, is the devil's playground. I, one of the, the some grads that we dealt with recently had a sexual problem. He was a closet pornographer, and 
Nobody knew it, but he said, I don't know what it is, but my car just turns into those parking lots beyond my control. And he cried, and he was broken about it, and he was just embarrassed to death about it. It was after he confessed that that the demon said, now he's in your control, and we cast him out, and that was gone. But they will take normal appetites and interests and put them to, put them to this level of compulsion where you can't deal with them, uh, if you don't engage in spiritual warfare, uh, please don't hear me say that you control uh, appetite problems by dealing with demons. We just have to use the disciplines God's given us to to set our diets and to to uh, stay away from uh, tempting places. Uh, we just don't uh, act like we couldn't be tempted. And you know enough of the, the stuff that's been in the national news of recent days. Uh, if you come to a family where there is a history of any of this kind of sin, particularly sexual sin, but alcoholism or anything else, you need to, to recognize the possibility that that is a demonic line that's coming down through the family. This thing with Gordon McDonald, I can't prove this. But I do know for a fact that his father and his brother both had the same, exactly the same sexual problem. And Gordon McDonald told the Ivy staff, I never thought I could be tempted in this area. He was so sure of himself. And he was just, you know, he, he couldn't believe it anymore than anybody else could believe it. But there he was. And that's the way Satan operates. He gets you to think that, that you're spiritual and, and you're beyond temptation in this area. Don't forget you're human and that Satan will use any kind of a, an opening he can get into your life. And uh, in the life of a missionary or Christian worker, if he can get you messed up in the sexual area particularly, he can have great, great benefit from that for his cause. So what's that area? Your nature and physical objects. Demons will attach themselves to things. And that doesn't make the thing in itself evil, but you need to understand that they do indeed attach themselves to things. A doctoral student of mine told about an experience in the Philippines. Uh, they moved into this house. He built a sandbox uh, out under a tree in the front yard, and the people told him, well, that's, that's a bad place to put a sandbox. There are demons who reside in that tree. And, uh, well, you know, we're not afraid of demons, so he, he built a sandbox, and his little boy was out there playing, and he came out one day, the boy was trying to strangle his dog, and it didn't connect the two at first, and reprimanded the boy, and next day he came out, and the same thing was happening, and then he began to see other bizarre behavior patterns in his child, and began to think maybe you better take it seriously, maybe there was indeed a demon in that tree, which turned out to be the actual fact. Uh, parents have discovered their children having these night terrors or whatever and discovering that they had occult symbols in the form of toys or other things that they brought into the child's room and simply removing those things from the child's room would, would remove that. They will attach themselves to things, particularly things that have been made with occult intent. And this is why idols, uh, fetishes, any objects that have been made with the intent of participating in worship that's demonic, uh, 
there may be actual demons attached to them. Not that the thing per se is anything, but that the demon attached to it is. If we had time, we could we need to talk about the whole concept of idolatry. And what scripture basically says about idolatry is, is that the idol per se is nothing. That's a piece of wood or metal and paint and decorations and so on. And it has to be nailed down because it can't move and so on. But Paul also says that those things which the pagans offer to idols, they offer to demons. Because the demons in their desire to be treated as gods will attach themselves to idols and portray themselves as gods and actually produce power, displays of power that make it look like the idol has power. And so you have to distinguish between the object per se and the power behind it, which would be a demonic power. The second area is the spiritual area, and we don't need to spend a lot of time in this. You're going to have probably less problems, at least in the basic. If you can get the person to doubt God, then, of course, he's undermined everything else. Or the Word of God, which is essentially the same as doubting God. Doubt of salvation, doubt and ignorance about Satan and demons. We've talked about this. More serious is neglect of prayer. And... Uh, Satan believes that if we don't, that prayer is the primary releaser of spiritual power. And therefore, if he can keep you from prayer, he can keep you from spiritual power. He can reduce you to that spiritual ineffectiveness we we're talking about. And neglect of witness or ministry, many other things that might be listed there, but these are characteristic ways in which Satan will operate in, uh, in people. The mental-emotional area is perhaps the primary area because everything really starts there, and these are not mutually exclusive. They obviously uh, overlap, but I identify it because there are some things that seem to really focus in that area, and uh, uh, Satan will play with the emotions. The most characteristic demonic emotion is fear. He loves to create fear to come on with a display of power and get you to fear him, or just get you to fear anything. Uh, sometimes children uh, have extremely terrifying experiences, and the demons will try to capitalize on that and pr produce a, a pattern of fear going on through their lives. If the fear isn't dealt with uh, properly, if the protection of the parents is not adequately understood and exercised and uh, uh, healing really take place for that fearful experience. It produces a ground, as it were, for ongoing demonic activity. And we have had cases like this where we had to go back and, and really identify the, the beginning point of the problem and experience spiritual healing for that fear in order to get rid of the demonic activity related to it. Uh, other emotions, high, low, whatever. I think one of the problems with certain elements in the church is that they tend to live on emotions, and they equate emotion with spirituality. They equate emotion with worship. And if your emotions are aroused, you've really had the epitome of a good service. Uh, one has to be careful because emotions are very easily manipulated, and you can go up and down quickly, and Satan will bring you to a great ecstatic height and then plunge you down into the depths of 
of emotionlessness or, or of a negative emotion and then taunt you that you're supposed to be a Christian. Here you are up and down. You just can't live on your emotions. One of his lies is that you are what you feel. And if you don't feel like it, uh, you shouldn't do it. If you don't feel like praying, then it's hypocrisy to pray. If you don't feel like studying the scriptures, well, you're just playing games if you make yourself study them. That's a lie. We're supposed to live on the basis of what's true. Uh, you will never find in the scriptures, uh, I don't think, any place that tells you to do what you feel like doing. You're supposed to do what's true. And uh, so we've got to not listen to Satan's lies in this realm of our emotions. And social relationships, I believe Satan is, is active in trying to destroy personal relationships. I told a few of you at lunch about an experience my wife and I had uh, a couple of years ago when uh, we began to have compulsively critical attitudes toward each other. Uh, we've worked through a lot of personal relationships, marriage relationships, over our 30-some years of marriage, and uh, we had a lot to work over. We came from very different backgrounds. Uh, we had both been married previously, lost first mates through death, uh, had instant family when we were married, and we had lots of adjustments. So we know something of what normal marriage communication problems are, but we had never experienced anything like what we were going through at that point in our relationship. There was just a compulsively critical spirit between us. I don't remember whether it went on for days or weeks, but however long uh, the Lord let it go on, he wanted to make sure we really learned our lesson. I finally understood what was happening and said, Lord, I know this isn't from you. And I ask you to forgive me for allowing this to control me, because I'm allowing something to control me that doesn't come from you, and I'm responsible for that. And I confess my responsibility, and I name it sin. And I command the spirit that's putting this pressure on me to leave me. And it was gone. And I was back to, to normal in my relation to my wife, not to perfection, to normal. And my wife did the same thing, and she would tell you if she were here, she was lying in bed at night when she did this, and she had the sense of something leaving her, and again, we were back to normal relationships. Now, that's the kind of pressure that Satan can put on normal problems. My wife and I are both perfectionists. We both uh, can be rather easily uh, turned off by things that come short of our standards of perfection. And so we have to learn to sense the hurt the minute it comes and say, I refuse to be controlled by it. You don't have to let those things control you. Satan will put it there and then, you know, point you and say, look what you're thinking. You're supposed to be such a good Christian. Say, yeah, Satan, and I refuse it. I refuse to own that. I refuse to allow it to control me. And you have the ability to do that. I was lying in bed one night discouraged. I mean, just like a wet dish rag there. I was uh, wiped out. And uh, the Lord said, why don't you practice what you preach? I said, yeah, I preach that discouragement's always from the devil. God is in the business of encouraging us, getting us to practice courage. Courage is resolute action in the presence of fear, in the presence of something that's threatening. It's not the absence of the threat. It's resolute action in the presence of it. Discouragement is not doing that. It's being under the circumstances. So I said, right, Lord, I'm sinning. Uh, I am allowing discouragement to control me, and that's my fault.
and I reject it, and I reject any spirit of discouragement that's here. And immediately it was gone, and my wife would tell you she knew when that happened, even though I hadn't said a word, because I ceased to be a limp dish rag. That's not the way I lie in bed normally. And I became myself, and she knew that something had happened to me. Uh, it may not always be quite as neat as that, but you'll be surprised how you can indeed control that at the mental and emotional level and in these social relationships where uh, Satan brings that hurt between you and, and your wife, you and your co-worker, you and your boss or whatever, and you have to learn to say, I refuse to be controlled by anything that's not from God. And God's not in the business of putting tension between his people. He's not in the business of telling you that you have a right to be resentful and hurt. hurt. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not easily provoked. And uh, we need to make sure that we're testing our Christian lives by the right standard. Well, that's the, the personal level, and there are many more things that might be said about it. But uh, let me move uh, quickly to the, the second level, which we call the ministry level. And here, the Christian is on the initiative against the enemy. The Christian is on the initiative against the enemy. Uh, we're doing the attacking. We're Israel invading Canaan. We are claiming the territory. We're enlarging the beachhead that Christ started when he came and preached the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In his ministry, he opened a beachhead for this kingdom that we are now enlarging. And it's not that we're someday going to bring the kingdom by our efforts, but that we are demonstrating what the kingdom of heaven is. It is the power of God over the work of Satan in the world. And so our ministry is enlarging that beachhead, as it were. The first step in it is evangelism. It is the ultimate power encounter, bringing people, Acts 26, 18, from the power of Satan to God, taking them out of his realm on that diagram, the line of power and, of, uh, and deception that holds them in control, taking them out of that realm and putting them into the realm of, of God. And never underestimate the significance of that as a power encounter. A second type is the destruction of occult objects. It is imperative that anyone wanting to have a, a proper relationship with the Lord has to cleanse their house and their possessions of occult objects. Uh, many a person has tried to uh, bypass some of this, to keep a few of the things for old time's sake, or they belong to my parents, they've been in the family for generations, or whatever. Uh, it doesn't work. I've uh, heard of stories from the mission field where former witch doctors uh, came to Christ but couldn't seem to really get through to victory, and they said, well, I've still got a few things in a box in my house, and they have to go and cleanse it, clean it out. One of the pre-church missionaries in Zaire had an experience like this where he went to, he and the pastor went to pray with someone with demonic problems, and they saw in the house fetishes hanging around, and they had to cleanse the house of the fetishes before 
the deliverance was was complete. Uh, that almost goes without saying, but don't play down the the power of uh, these objects. I was asked to go to a um, kind of a haunted house situation at Fort Wayne a few years, some years ago, and uh, there were snakes crawling under the rug where couldn't see them, but they could see the, the evidence of them and doors and windows opening and these weird things happening. Walked in the house and here were occult objects all over the place. Just, you know, bald-faced uh, occult symbols. And the woman was totally unwilling to deal with them, uh, to face the fact that, that they were indeed evil. And so we left with doing nothing there. You just don't try to act in the face of that kind of giving ground. Prayer is in itself a power encounter. The classic biblical model is, of course, Elijah and Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal. You pray to your God, I'll pray to mine. And there will be times when you may be challenged with that kind of a, a prayer uh, challenge. Some missionaries in Sierra Leone, where I served uh, just a uh, short time ago, were approached by the Mohammedans in the village, the Muslims, to pray together for rain. Well, you know that they have to be pretty desperate for Muslims to ask Christians to pray with them. Uh, that would only happen, I suppose, where there was a lot of syncretism in, in the Islam. But at any rate, the Christians were wise enough to say, no, you pray one day and we'll pray another day. Then we'll know whose prayers are being answered. So the Muslims prayed and nothing happened. The Christians came and, and they met in the morning and began to pray for rain. And at noon, the clouds came up and it rained. And the clouds almost, it never rains at noon. It rains in the morning and later afternoon, but not midday. And everybody knew that it was the Christian God that had sent the rain. Same African student at the seminary told me about similar experience in the Sudan. In that case, they challenged the Christians to pray, and everybody else would stay in. The first day, they started to pray, and the clouds started to come up, and everybody came out to get in on the act, so they get a little credit for it, and the clouds went back down. And uh, leaders came to them and said, we didn't keep our word. We'll make sure everybody stays in tomorrow, and you the only ones praying. So they prayed, and the clouds came up, and rain, and rain for three days, and it rained so hard they could hardly get out of their houses. Uh, we're not used to those kinds of practical encounters in prayer. I could give you even more practical ones, but but prayer is a, a very uh, significant power encounter. As we've said, it is the primary releaser of power. In many parts of the world, if you're not prepared to uh, talk about spiritual healing and God's power in healing, you're simply not going to get much of a hearing from the people because they are so accustomed to supernatural healings of a demonic sort that if you can't produce supernatural healings from the, the Christian God, then they'll stick with the, the powers that can do it, even though there may be other problems related to it. Uh, this is happening in many places in the world. Again, the church in Red China, <coughs> healing is a normal part of the life of the church particularly in the house churches of China. They just expect healing to take place. In one place, a communist cadreman who was part of the, the communist group that was to keep the church in check, indeed to harass the church, and he'd been harassing them, 
and uh, his tongue swelled up so badly that he couldn't get it back into his mouth, and uh, he hadn't been able to get any medical help for it. And somebody said, you know, go to the Christians, they'd pray for you, and you'd get healed. Well, that was kind of the last thing he wanted to do, but he was desperate, so he did. And he was healed, and he and his whole family became Christians as a result of it. Uh, I was in a, an automobile accident about five years ago, in which my chest was crushed. I had what's called flail chest, and all my ribs were crushed on the left side, and some on the right side were crushed, and my lungs were punctured, and I was you know, as close to dying as you can get, I guess, and, and not die. Woman in China had a similar kind of an injury where a large boulder fell on her and she was brought into the hospital and uh, uh, the doctor looked at her and said, there's nothing we can do for her and they put her to bed to die. She, uh, the next morning the doctor came in and she was sitting on the edge of the bed eating. And the doctor said, what are you doing? He said, well, the nurse asked if I was hungry, so and I said, yes. <laughs> and what happened to you? Jesus healed me. He put her on a cart and took her down to x-ray, and he couldn't find a sign of a damaged rib. And uh, sent her back to a commune, and she took her x-rays back there and said, this is what Jesus did for me. Uh, you saw what happened to me in the accident. Here I am today as a demonstration of the power of Jesus to heal. They had a revival in the commune. And that's been happening so often in China that in one in the Hunan province, they put a, set out a list of rules for the church. Don't pray every day, just pray on Sunday. Don't pray at home, just pray at church. Don't preach everywhere, just preach in the church. Those kind of dumb things. And the tenth one was, don't cast out demons and don't pray for the sick. Because so many people were getting freedom from demons and being healed physically, that it was producing this revival. And the communists were at a loss to tell these people that religion is the opium of people and there's no power and is outdated and all that. It was... You know, and that's what's behind much of the revival that's going on in China today. And, uh, you know, there were maybe a million Christians, believers in China in 1949 when the communists took over. They figured if there were still a million in 1980 when the doors began to open, that that would be great. Doors began to open and they said, you're not one million, there are five million. They said, it's not five, it's 15, it's 25, it's 50 million. And some people are today are, are seriously suggesting there may be 100 million Christians in China today. But if there are 50 million, and almost everybody agrees that there are 50 million, that's unheard of revival in that length of time. If all 4,000 Protestant missionaries had stayed there, they wouldn't have produced that kind of church growth. I mean, that's, that doesn't fit any of the charts. Uh, but that's what's happened. And it's happened... Uh, because partly because power encounter has been at the heart of it. Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing, but it's it's one of the things. Sometimes in your missionary ministry, you may have to have open confrontation with demonic forces, as Paul with Elymas the sorcerer on the island of Cyprus. You may have to go head to head. Uh, John Payton was a pioneer missionary in the New Hebrides Islands in the South South Pacific. He was preaching one night in a village, and he recognized in the circle of people listening to him the three most powerful sorcerers in the area. They were known to have the power of life and death over people through spiritual uh, forces. When he got through, they said, missionary, we don't need your God. We can kill you by Nahak, Nahak being their way of killing people. And everybody believed it implicitly. Now, it's easy to stand here in this nice 
Ravisburg talk about this, but you imagine yourself being the only white missionary on the island of the Hebrides. Well, his wife was there, but, you know, a pioneer. You're out in a dark village where there aren't electric lights, and you've got three demon-possessed men glaring at you, threatening to kill you. What do you do? Well, he knew they practiced contagious magic, which says that anything that's been in touch with a person's body, you can put curses on, and that'll happen to the person. So he took three pieces of fruit, took a bite out of each one, so part of the fruit was in him, gave the rest of it to each one of those sorcerers, and said, do your worst. Not sword or spear, only spiritual power, the power of Christ, greater than any power you know. And the people were petrified. They expect a missionary to fall over dead on the spot. When after a week, those sorcerers hadn't been able to do a thing to John Payton. And even when they, in their desperation, resorted to spears, God froze their hand up in the air so the spear wouldn't move. You better believe those people heard the gospel in a way that they had never heard it out of his mouth. Now, that's power encounter. And uh, some, I'm not saying you go out trying to create those situations, but sometimes you may be faced with them, and uh, you need to be prepared to take advantage of it. One day a witch doctor was watching... And uh, the African had told the missionaries that on the corner of the mission property was a pagan shrine. Everybody in the area knew what it was. It was a power center. And so it was this witch doctor watching. They went out and they prayed and they cut down all the trees and they simply destroyed that area and they claimed it for the Lord Jesus. The witch doctor expected them to fall over dead when they challenged that spot. And when he didn't, he became a Christian. He said, your God has more power than my God. Uh, those are the kinds of things that you will sometimes encounter. Casting out demons is the more common kind of encounter that we read about in scriptures and we hear about occasionally. We have to be prepared to simply, in the name of Jesus, claim our authority and command spirits to come out. And uh, then... Confronting demons associated with governments. Uh, there is a lot of talk today about uh, demon forces being associated with government systems, with political systems, social systems, economic systems. Uh, I think that that's to some extent true, except I don't think the force is usually in the system per se, I think it's in the people who operate the system. Uh, you probably, some of you at least, have heard of liberation theology. It's a theology which says that sin is not so much personal sin as it is the oppression of people by oppressive systems. And what we need to do is to change those economic and social and political systems so that we relieve people of oppression, and that's getting rid of sin. And that inherent in those systems is demonic power. Well, if it's demonic power, you combat demonic power with spiritual power, not with other political or social or economic power, or certainly with military power. Uh, revolution is not the way to handle that, but prayer is the way to handle it. Now, you do need to recognize, however, that in some cases, you may be going into virgin territory, even whether it's virgin or not. The principle is true that 
Satan probably assigns demons to every geopolitical unit in the world. So there's a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece, and there's a, a prince of any country you go to, but there's also one of the village or town that you work in. A missionary going to work in uh, among the North American Indians was told by a veteran missionary, you better be prepared to do battle with the demon of that village when you invade his territory. He didn't have much of a concept of what all that meant, except he hadn't been there long, and his wife got sick and had to be flown out, and his son got sick and had to be flown out, and he was standing alone in his cabin one day with his back to the pot-bellied stove when he heard this awful noise behind him, apparently coming down the smokestack, and something like jumped on his back, and he staggered to a chair and uh, sat down, and for 30 minutes he did battle with the demon of the village. And he said, you demon of Borchett, I'm here in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I intend to stay here in his power. I come with his authority, and you have no right to drive me out. And he stayed on in victory for his term of service in that village. Had he not understood what was going on, he might have simply flown out himself and given up that village and let the demons have it. Uh, I believe that that is indeed the case, and to carry that down... To a more local level, let me urge you to cleanse any ground you live on and any house you live in, wherever you are. Don't take for granted that simply because you're Christians, nothing will happen to you. A young lady who, who served the free church in Zaire came to me a couple of years ago, and she said, I'm glad that somebody understands these things that I can talk about. it." But she said, I was studying French in Switzerland. And I became very debilitated, and I couldn't study, and I couldn't sleep. And she's just a naturally outgoing, bubbly kind of person. And uh, it was she wasn't learning her French. Finally, a missionary said, where are you living? And she took her to the place, and they discovered that the previous occupant of this room had it full of occult objects. And they prayed over it, and they cleansed it, and they commanded any spirits that attached themselves to the room or any of the furnishings rooms leave. And that night she back sleeping like a baby and learning her French. Uh, I could tell you many stories of, of that kind. Uh, in this country, an evangelist, Southern Baptist evangelist, this isn't a charismatic, uh, wild-eyed Pentecostal, is a Southern Baptist. He said every time he goes into a hotel room where he's being housed, he cleanses it of any spirits that left over previous occupants. And he was doing that once, and the pastor of the church was with him, and when he prayed and commanded the spirits to leave, every light bulb in the room burst. And the pastor said, hey, what's going on here? He said, well, let's go find out. So they went down to the front desk and asked the clerk who had been in that room last. He said, oh, that was a mess. There was a fortune teller in there. They just had people in and out of there all the time. A woman out in Dubuque, Iowa, was very depressed, and we, my wife counseled with her when I was there preaching a couple years ago. Uh, we went back the next year and stayed with the people, and she was fine. Her depression was completely gone. The only thing that had happened was she had gone through her house and cleansed it. It was an old house, and lots of people had lived there and didn't know what had gone on in it. She simply cleansed it and went from room to room, claimed the blood of Christ to cleanse her house, and her depression was gone. That's uh, not always... You know, just that simple, but certainly on the mission field, you never know what your ground has been used for and what claim the demons may make on it. 
make sure that you don't take it for granted, but you establish your home as a place of spiritual refuge where you deliberately cleanse it, certainly church property the same way. Free church pastor out in the western state called me last year. They were for the first time dealing with a demonized person. In the process of that, they discovered that curses had been placed on their church. And they said, we've noticed ever since we came here that there was a pall over these services that we couldn't explain. They cleansed the church and uh, canceled the curses. And she called the next, uh, the wife called the next week and said, you wouldn't believe the difference in the services now. Uh, this is a new worldview. You know, it's, it's a new concept, I, I, I admit, but it's functional, and I urge you to not take for granted the, the ability of the demons to operate in the area of the ground you stand on, back in terms of the, the being in things and so on. And in this area of family, uh, I will leave a copy of some material here. Maybe you can get copies made of it on how to establish your home as a spiritual refuge. Parents need to understand that they are the spiritual guardians of their children. And from conception on, parents should, should claim that authority. They should cut off any lines of demonic involvement that would come from ancestral lines. Now, let me just pause a little sideline here and say about that, that what comes down from generations past is not guilt for sin. We are not guilty of the sins of our ancestors, but the effects of the sins of those ancestors. It's like the disease line that gets in the genetic stream is passed on from generation to generation. The effects of sin are passed on from generation to generation, and the demons will claim the right to be an offspring because they were, were in the, uh, the ancestor. And that may go from grandparent to grandchild. Uh, I don't have time to illustrate this, but uh, it, it does indeed happen. And what you need to do is to claim your position in Christ and to cut off that law of generations. The blood of Christ will cancel the sin of the ancestors and its effect on you if you claim it to do so. And so you need to, as it were, interpose the, the work of Christ at the cross between you and your family and all that's gone before in your ancestral line. A couple of the seminaries said, we want to be missionaries to Africa, uh, but my wife's health is such she could never stand the tropics. I told them how to renounce their family line because in this case they knew that her mother had been involved in what's called fire blowing, which is a magical form of healing. They went back and prayed over this and they said they were surprised at what the Lord led them to renounce in their family lines and in their own lives. They did the renunciation, commanded any spirits involved with it to leave. They went to Africa on a short term last summer. They're now under permanent assignment to Africa. But that would never have happened had they not uh, taken their authority to, to divest themselves of this ancestral inheritance. You need to do that for yourselves and for your children, and to know that, that at least in the, before they come to the age where they know what they're doing, you are their spiritual shield, and no demon can get into your child without bypassing you. And you don't allow them to bypass you. You tell them, you have no right to be there. I command you to leave. Yes, sir. How do you uh, put this in the framework of uh, 
Apostle Paul is destroying the flesh, how, how can we be sure that uh, this particular thing in our life, God's approval of parting us into his life, and not get to a well, the answer, uh, you know, the simple answer is spiritual discernment. And I know that sounds too simple, but that ultimately is what it is. Paul had to be able to hear God say, my grace is sufficient for you. And this, this is something that I am allowing, and you need to live with it. I have a thorn in my flesh, in a sense, you know, my ribs didn't get healed the way the ribs of the lady in China did, and I have discomfort in my ribs all the time. As I stand here, there's discomfort, not excruciating pain, but discomfort there. And uh, it reminds me of my humanity. It reminds me that I'm in the flesh. God could heal that, just like he did for the woman in China, but he doesn't do that. And we need to be prepared to accept that sort of thing. What you don't accept is demonic harassment that's influencing your ministry and rendering you ineffective. You don't accept demonic activity that is, is essentially evil and destructive in nature. Uh, there is a difference. Uh, and I, I, I say I really don't know any answer other than spiritual discernment. We have to be so open to the working of the Holy Spirit that he does indeed guide us in relation to that. I'm not saying it, you know, that it doesn't happen. I'm not a name it and claim it person at all. I think we pray for and we claim the things that God gives us guidance to pray for and to claim. Prayer in its real essence is finding out what God wants and insisting on that against the enemy. It's not going to God and telling him what I want. What often happens is that we go to God with our list. We read, uh, delight thyself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So we've got our list of carnal desires here, and we say, now how do I manipulate God to get my list of carnal desires? Well, if you delight in the Lord, you've got to scrap your list of carnal desires and make a whole new list that comes out of your delighting in the Lord. And uh, so we've got to make sure that we have our priorities straight, and that it's God that's doing the guiding, and it's God that's putting the desires there and giving us the, the guidance as to what to pray for. I think that's even the way the gifts of the Spirit operate. I don't think God gives people the gift of healing so they can go around willy-nilly healing anybody they want to. You know, the challenge comes, if you've got the gift of healing, go clean out that hospital. Jesus never did that. He didn't clean out the pool of Bethesda. He healed one man because he perceived something in that man. Paul and Lystra perceived that the man having faith to be healed said, stand on your feet. There are probably plenty of people there that he could have, uh, that needed healing, but he healed the one God gave him guidance to heal. So we've got to make sure that that's the line of authority and that we're not simply demanding some personal right or carnal desire. My question, um, in Synopsis and least one account, there's a time where the disciples couldn't cast out a demon. Jesus said he's only come out through much prayer and fasting. In your experience, have you dealt with situations where there's a great variety of the force of a demon that actually demon? Uh, yes, indeed. The question was that... Uh, at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples had not been able to cast this demon out of the boy, and they said, why couldn't we? And Jesus said, two, two reasons. One, because of your little faith, and because this kind comes out only by prayer or prayer and fasting. Uh, and the question was, are there indeed uh, 
levels of power among the demons so that some are more difficult than others. Indeed there are. Just as there are archangels and categories of angels under them, there are the same rankings in the demonic world, and uh, some of them are very strong and some of them are, are very weak, and you simply have to be prepared to do battle with them. Uh, I can't explain this totally. The Daniel 10 passage where the angel came to Daniel and said, Daniel, the first day that you prayed, I was sent with the answer. But the prince of Persia withstood me 21 days. So he had to pray and fast for 21 days before the answer got there, not because there was something wrong with Daniel, but because of the conflict in the spirit world between these, these powers in the air. Now, I can't explain all of that simply to say that, that that's spiritual warfare. That's one dimension of it. And there are powerful demons, and he said, I had to call for Michael to come and help me. And when Michael came, because he was an archangel, he was able to uh, overcome the power of the Prince of Persia, and uh, the answer to prayer came. But the, the New Testament model of that is the Luke 18 parable, that Jesus taught them this parable that meant always to pray and not to faint. There was a widow who had an adversary. She went to the unjust judge to be avenged of her adversary, and the judge wouldn't do it, but finally because of... She kept badgering, and he did. And Jesus said, you know, what's the lesson of all this? Not that you have to badger God to get him to overcome, but you have to hold on against the adversary, against the adversary. And the last line of it is, nevertheless, when the Son of Man, will he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Faith for what? Faith to hold out against the adversary. Faith to not give Satan an inch not to allow him to have control, even if it takes three weeks, even if it takes four hours dealing with a, a person, or whatever it takes. Uh, I wish that it were magic, and all you had to do is to say the right words, and boom, it was done. I just don't know any evidence that that's the way it works, either biblically or, or in practice. So we have to be prepared to hang on, and sometimes the demons are very strong. Sometimes the issue is the ground the person's giving them, and they haven't repented properly of their sin. And uh, if they haven't done that, they're just going to camp there on that sin.